I want to draw your attention to a couple of pictures of buildings. Um, we're in Exodus chapter 25. Um, Jude said that we're just in the middle of the series. We're really reaching. There's only a couple more left after this. So this is, this is climactic. So this is not just, this is not middle of the road. This is just drawing to a climactic end. And it takes an interesting twist here. But we're drawn into being looking at a building. I don't know if we're going to be able to get a few pictures up of these buildings. And I was going to say, and I've forgotten that Martin had labeled it. Does anybody know what that building is? <laughs> Does anybody know what that building is? Yeah, it's the Burj Khalif Tower. And I've only ever seen it on its own. I've never seen it in, in all of its splendor. And when you, just when you, when you see a picture like that, it's just amazing, isn't it? Just the just speaks volumes of like us human beings and what we're trying to do, what we're thinking of what we're trying to do. And it's the tallest tower in the world today, but it's not going to remain the tallest tower in the world. It stands at 828 meters, but it's soon to be overtaken by a tower in Jeddah, which is Saudi Arabia, which will be another 200 meters taller than this tower or something like that. And you look at something like that, have we got somebody who's been? People that have been to that tower, oh, that's so awesome. And I think you look at something like that and you think, there's just no way that you, it's, how do you make something bigger than that? And it's kind of where our human minds are at. And yet, again, part of our humanity is, well, we will have to find a way to make something bigger because that's what we do as human beings. Okay, another building. And I really just want to have, we're talking about a building. I want us to think about what these buildings tell us about our humanity. Again, anybody tell me where that, where that building is? Has anybody been familiar with the progress of this story? Have you followed this? I hadn't till Paul said, oh, you're speaking on this. You should talk about this. This would be amazing. This is a real Paul moment. He could barely stay on his seat in the office. I hope he's not listening to this sermon later on tonight online or anything like that. He said, oh, you need to talk about Apple Park. This is the most amazing place. So let me just give you a bit of the, the spec that Steve Jobs left uh, with the people. It cost five billion pounds. The idea was that it would have 80% green space, and it's in Los Angeles, Western America, so apparently they don't get a whole lot of rain there. But think about what Steve Jobs and his team are trying to create. They have planted 9,000 drought-resistant trees. I, didn't, I don't know how you get a drought-resistant tree. I don't know what the process is for that. I don't know if that's human-manufactured, or you go and find some trees that are just awesome and they don't drought. Anyway, he's created this sort of paradise place. The idea is that it would be a perfect circle. There's no bolts out of place. Everything is smooth and shiny. Every plane of glass is curved. There's no, there's no speck. One of Steve Jobs' requirements was that you wouldn't see a paintbrush stroke. Do you know that when you paint your house? That's the ideal, isn't it, that you don't see that? He just went around and said, we're not going to see any paintbrush strokes. We're not going to see any of the elements of man's flaws in that sense. This space is going to be perfect. And you can kind of imagine living in it, can't you? Or working in it. I spent the best part of 20 years working in the mill in Batley. Not the best place for creative thinking, working in a mill in Batley covered in dust. I did, I did my best, but it's not the best space for creative thinking. But I think part of Steve Jobs' ideal here was that you can almost imagine the guy. So the car parks are all underneath. You don't see the car parks. Imagine the guy driving in in his uh, electric-powered Toyota Yaris and having a business meeting with his buddy in, under one of the trees and they're thinking creatively and maybe everybody, Steve Jobs can create an environment that is so good and so awesome that 
that this company, Apple, can stay ahead of the game forever. It creates a paradise, or at least is trying to. I think the buildings that we make are so informative about us as human beings. It's why we go around digging places up, because it teaches us so much about human beings. And if you ever watch Grand Designs, Kevin MacLeod's little speeches, little preaches to the camera at the end, just generate this sense of, yeah, these buildings really teach us. People are hoping and searching for something more with the buildings that they create, aren't they? They help us make sense of the world. They're hoping, we talk about a forever home. You heard about people talking about that. I think we've probably talked about that, although Jude avoids the idea of a forever home, but this idea that we're going to build something that's going to bring us some like real eternal hope and peace, trying to create a bit of paradise. And one of the traumas of living life on the earth is that we always come up a bit short. This awesome building, somewhere down the line, is going to be a Heck of a hard space to sell and fill once Steve Jobs has, once the wind has changed slightly on the tech industry. It's going to be a really hard place to fill. But we, we seek after utopia. And we always come up a little bit short. I don't know if you ever thought about this. We live in a world in the UK where we are amongst, and I don't know what the percentage is, but just we live in the best houses in the world. You keep reading these stats where we're in the 5% best off people in the world. And we don't look down at everybody else and think, oh, this is awesome. Because we're at the top of the ladder. We're in utopia. We've got it the best. We don't think like that, do we? We always think, I need to find a better house. And there's always this sense that we can make a smarter home, we can make a more sleek home, and we kind of chase after some sort of deeper meaning with the buildings that we have. And there's always a sense that there's a slightly better dwelling out there. Do you ever get that when you, when you we've, we've had these conversations for our whole lives. If we just got, a, if we just got an arga, Ash, if we just had an arga, then life would be better. If we just had open plan living, that was the dream a little bit. And now we've got open plan living and we're like, we could do with a door to shut the kids out. <laughs> Let's put an extension on the back. That will save everything. You've probably, some of you have probably put extensions on the back. It's not saved everything. You're still searching for the next thing, there's always a better dwelling to be had. We're in the book of Exodus. And the story is of an epic story. In literature, it's an epic story. But from watching the films and everything about this story, it is an epic story. And the people in the story are expecting... I mean, you think about what's happened so far in the story of Exodus. If you're an Israelite or if you're somebody reading this story, you are expecting something awesome next. Jude says we're in the middle. We're not. We're coming to the climax. This is the climax. We've had, we've had the parting of the Red Sea. We've had Moses magicking frogs out of thin air. We've just had amazing sights. If you're an Israelite, I think you're just going to become pretty familiar with this stuff. And, and Moses is now up Sinai. And there's thunder and lightning and clouds. If you're down there, you're thinking, man, this is, this is an epic story. What on earth is going to happen next? And it's a weird, like if you're reading this story through, and I have been reading Exodus over and over again, you're like, we're heading in. I don't know what's going to come next. This is going to be an amazing thing. Whatever it is that's coming next is going to be an amazing thing. Moses come, comes down the mountain, and I imagine him doing a bit of a, like when you've got some boring news to give, does a little bit of a, <clears throat> okay, so this is what God's said we're going to do next. We've had the parting of the Red Sea. We've had all this. He's told us we're going to make a tent. And you're like, what? A 
tent. That's the plan. This is the climax. It's going to be a tent. Listen to what he says. Can you imagine? And I'm going to try and read it with enthusiasm, but like reading any list of long instructions, you're all going to, and I'm going to read it till you all fall asleep, but I want you to get the nature of this part of the Bible. We've headed at like, on like epic sort of scale, and we've reached this part of the Bible where it's almost like the writer's determined for us to shut the book. It just gets so tiny and so into the detail. This is the reading, Exodus 26, verse 1 to 13. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains, remember the people are expecting something exciting, something awesome. All the curtains, excited about curtains, anyone? Anyone moved by curtains? One or two people could be you know, slightly engaged by the subject of curtains. I switch off. When it comes to upholstery and anything like that, I'm done. I'm not listening. All the curtains are to be the same size. You can see Moses telling this to all the people. People going, what? what? Where are we headed? This is an epic story. 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Maybe you're still carrying on an enthusiastic voice. I don't know. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end of the curtain in one set and do the same with the end of the curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make, this is the problem when you read the Bible to the kids, you come across something like that and like, what is this? What are you reading me here? But we're not, we're not nearly done yet. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long, And four cubits wide, join five of the curtains together into one set, and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain, double at the front of the tent, make 50 loops along the edge of the end of the curtain in one set, and along the edge of the end of the curtain in the other set. Good. One more round. (laughs) Then... Maybe this is going to get exciting. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them into the loops and fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of rams dyed red, ramskins dyed red, and over that a covering for the other Durable leather, you're all still here, well done. But have a look at that. Read it later on to your kids tonight if they can't sleep. Pop this open, chapter 25 through to 30-odd. It's like this the whole way. It's like, and if you're kind of following the story of Exodus, it's like something like you're watching Fast and Furious 26 and Vin Diesel's just, I don't know, burgled or robbed a bank with an aeroplane, something like that, using a chainsaw on an aeroplane, and then he's, then he's flown to a car park and he's pulled up outside B&Q, and you're at this halfway stage of the movie, and you're like, where are we going? And he's got this big list of things he needs for his house, and the whole rest of the movie is just Vin Diesel reading this long list of things he needs for his house. The people in the story are going, what? Where, is this, where was this headed? We're used to Moses grabbing his stick and throwing it into something, and the sea's parting. And then we all just walk along. The Bible gets, it leaves being a mac, like a macro story, I think that's the right word, where it's this big blazing story and it gets minute in its detail. And it does that for a reason. It's because it wants to draw our attention to the fact that actually this tent 
This is what it's all about. This is the storyline. This is where it's all been heading. It's all been about God. Jude said it at the start. God dwelling with his people. If you all, one of the like handful of taglines you could put about the whole Bible, simple storyline is it's about God being where the people are. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, something like Genesis 2, something, verse 8, God is there walking with them in the cool of the day, and it's perfect, and then mankind messes up, and then we miss it like mad for the rest of eternity. Jesus comes in John chapter 1. I'll have to just double check the verse. It says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. God was there, Christ was there in the beginning, and then by the time you get through to verse 14, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. What John is saying there, you take the word back to the root word, he said the word became flesh and tabernacled upon us. The word became flesh and literally moved in down the road. The word became flesh and camped up and was there. That's what it's saying. It's always been about God dwelling with his people. We've had this storyline of chaos, epic, awesome, interesting, good stuff to read to your kids but it's always been about getting to this bit that looks a little bit boring to us. It's about God dwelling with his people. I don't know. It forced me to think about my Christian life and your Christian life. Think about where it is and how it goes. A lot of the time, it's like the story of the Israelites. It just goes on like that. I'm desperate. I've got nothing. I'm in Egypt and we're crying out. Or you're in the desert and there's something that you need and then you go back to God. The storyline with God is that he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say stay in these moments. He says, I am taking you to a place where I can dwell with you. That is the plan and the challenge for us. Because so often, like looking back on my life, and maybe it's in front of me, I don't know. By God's grace, he might keep me. But in the back, yeah, loads of my times when I have just been, oh yeah, this is what faith is. It's really messing up and then screaming up to God. Or it's needing something like, oh, I want this promotion or I want this. Yeah, I'll talk to God now. And that's what faith looks like. And in this storyline, God gets us to this place and he focuses our attention and he says, no, this is what it's all about. I need to tell you about my house, the tabernacle, because it's all about me dwelling with my people challenge for us as we move on. So God moves in. This is the plan. And I want us just to learn a few uh, simple lessons about God's house. I don't know if we could um, have a picture of that house. That would be a really helpful thing. This is the coolest one I could come up with. There are other pictures out there. You learn a lot about somebody, I think, from, from the kind of house that they have. I've made the mistake in the past as a younger man, more naive than I am now, if you can hold that as a possibility. More naive, and I would go into somebody's house, and I remember doing it. I've been with friends that have done it, like slagged off somebody else's. You ever done that? Just, oh, that's a silly piece of furniture. Never. That is, you cannot, you cannot do that, because this piece of furniture that you've just seen that you're like, I'm not sure that's a very nice piece of furniture, is a piece of furniture that somebody has taken care of. You know, they've, they've looked at it in the shop, they've saved up for it, they've thought, I'm going to put it here because it looks awesome here. And it represents me. <laughs> And my values, it says something about them. When you walk into somebody else's home, you just need to look at the bookshelves or where the TV is or if they've got a TV or, if, or whatever else they've got, if they've got books out, if they've got a fancy coffee machine. You can learn so much about a person. 
And I just want us to look at God's house. And I'm going to raise up three sort of simple things. So we're going to look at a couple of bits of his furniture. I'm going to use that kind of language. It might not be appropriate, but I'm going to use that kind of language. We're going to look at a few bits of his furniture, the kind of wallpaper and decor he has, and the kind of people he lets come in. And we're going to see three things. So I'll sound them out for you so you're with me. We're going to see that God's holy. We're going to see that God's merciful. And we're going to see that God wants to share these things with the people. So I'll do it real quick because it's super hot, but stay with me. So the first thing that you can see on there, and this, this illustration is really helpful, is the bronze altar on your way in. Now, I always thought I had it in my head that it was a little thing like that. It's four and a half I'm not a hugely tall guy, so it would sort of cover me. Four and a half, no, it wouldn't quite cover me, but it'd be, I'd have to do a bit of that to see over it. Four and a half feet high, and it's burning all the time. And this is the first piece of furniture that you're going to see. You go into God's house. This is the first thing that you clap your eyes on. It's always burning. It's probably drenched in blood. I don't know how you get blood off of a bronze thing. I don't know if it comes off, but it's, it's got sacrifices on it the whole time. You're probably not going to be able to see anything else but this bronze altar, and what it tells us is there is a cost to being in this house. There is a cost involved to being in this house. It costs for you to get here. If you walk past, if you look past the bronze altar, you go into the holy of holies, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and there's two sort of truths as you get near to the holy of holies. The first one is the nearer you get to where God stays, the more restricted it gets. The less you can get there, the more that covers it, the more veiled it is. The nearer you get to God, the more difficult it is to get there and also the more beautiful it gets as you get there. This place is ornately, beautifully, skillfully, craftfully decorated. And you go in a building like that or you're involved in the setup of a building like that and you can't escape the fact that God is holy. And I'm not just talking... Ned Flanders out of the Simpsons, like slightly annoying, but a good guy deep down. I'm talking holy as in this, as in awesome, as in I can't be around something that's not perfect because I'll consume it. I, it's not because I don't like it because I'm God, but it's just because of how holy and perfect I am. This is God's house. He's holy. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see and I say it's the second thing that we see. It's, these are the things that I've seen. You could preach for 100 weeks on the tabernacle. But I'm just going to pick a few bits of furniture. The second things that I saw involves the Ark of the Covenant, another bit of furniture that exists inside the Holy of Holies in there. And God told them to make this and put this together. And it's what is on top of the Ark of the Covenant that I want to draw your attention to, another little bit of furniture. In, in the NIV version that I've got, it calls it an atonement cover, which is a really helpful thing to think about. But in other versions, it would call it a mercy seat. I want to listen to what God says about this bit of furniture in his house. It tells them to make it, verse 25, 17 through 22. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Here comes some more of this language. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover, verse 19. Make one cherub on one end of the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece of the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments that I will give you. There, listen to this, there above the cover between the two cherubim, 
over the ark of the covenant of the law is where I will meet you. That is where I will meet you. It's like one of the most beautiful verses I've come across in Exodus. In this place that is holy and sacred and powerful, God says there is a place. It's kind of my favorite piece of furniture in God's house. I think, I'd be willing to say, I think every home should have a mercy seat. Maybe, you, maybe you've got one. Even a literal mercy seat. Do you know how in life, when you do something, this is kind of what, how I think of the mercy seat, when you do something that's just so bad, so wrong, means you just can't even front up to a person. It might even be in your own family. It might be somebody else in church. It might be somebody down the street. Whatever else it is. It might be somebody way in the past. It might be somebody that's living under your roof. And it's often like that in families, isn't it? You can't front up to them. You can't face up to them. God has this idea of a mercy seat. He exists as this holy, law-giving, righteous, perfect being. And yet in his house, there is this spot for somebody like me. God comes to meet us. God says, I will meet you here at the mercy seat. And then I guess in our mind's eye, we think to ourselves, this is probably often the wrestling match with God. You can't have a God who is perfectly righteous and holy and has all these rules. And that is merciful as well. And we think that, I think, sometimes because we can't do that. We can't get into that place. God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And yet he is soaked in mercy. And he makes a space for us to meet him in his house. Second thing. The third and the final thing is it's that he shares it with the people. He's holy. He's merciful. And he wants to share with the people. I think, it's, I think it's significant, the people that you let into your home, isn't it? You get an invite around for lunch somewhere, and you're like, should we ask them back? No, it's significant, isn't it? You're like, you have a good think about it, don't you? Should we have them around? Should we not go around? Even the tradesman that you get in, the guy that comes in and does your plumbing or something like that, is just useless. You think, I'm not having this guy back again. Let's think about what God's saying when he invites people into his house. I want us to notice how God wants people to be involved, and it's 25 one through nine. Listen into this. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Verse eight, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There's another passage later on. This is a really helpful passage, 31. I don't know if we've got it up there. 31, verse 1 to 6, when we're thinking about the kind of people that God lets into his house. Then, that's awesome. Then the, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with the wisdom of understanding, with the knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Ohiliob, son of somebody of the tribe of Dan, to help him, and I have also given all the ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. Do you notice the kind of way that God wants to involve the people in this? God says, those of you whose hearts are prompted, it's like on one hand, it's like a command. It's like, I want you to do this. But on the other hand, it's a qualification. He says, if your hearts are prompted, if you're the kind of person that recognizes who I am and wants to be involved and wants to give of what you've got, then I want you to be involved in this. If you've got skills 
that could help make this place awesome. If you've got skills that could really magnify my glory in this, I want you to help in this. It's an interesting thing as a parent when you give, it's kind of two kind of jobs I give to my kids when I want help. One of the jobs I give is when I just want them out of the way. Would you tidy your room up, please? And they'll come back, it's tidy, Dad. Go and tidy your room up again, and I'll say it again, and it's, it's not a, it, there's nothing to tidy, it's just a job, I just want you out of the way. This is not the kind of job that God gives us. It's sometimes you give your kids a job, and it's because you want them to really get hold of something. A good example is, is when it's Christmas time, and it comes to decorating the Christmas tree. You think about what that is. It's a joyful experience if you've got a family with young kids, but actually, it's, hard, it's a hard work. It's like a day and a half's worth of work. You've got to go and get a tree. You've got to cut it down. That's what we do anyway. Or get it out of the loft. You've got to get the lights on. This is, lit. This is laborious stuff. And, I, and you say to your kids, now, come on, get involved with this. Why do I do it? Is it because I'm like an evil father who just wants to kick back and watch the Christmas decorations just gloriously appear around him? It's, it's not that. It's because I want my kids to know that Christmas is coming and to really get it in its fullest sense. I want you to be involved with this. I want you to enjoy this as much as you can. I want to share this experience with you. This will really help. What can you do? Can you put the lights on? Can you help in this way? Could you decorate it like this? You will get so much more out of it if you do it like that. And that is what God says to this bunch of Israelites in this desert space. What have you got? How can you help here? Come and help display my glory with the things that I have given you. And you look back at this tabernacle Maybe even through the eyes of the psalmist, David. You read through the psalms. David loves this place. There's at least half a dozen psalms that are just like sonnets, love letters to the house of God. He's like, I want to dwell in this place all of my days. This is just the best place. This is where I know I'm at peace. This is where I know perfect justice exists. You look back at the house of God and you say, this is the place. How do I get here? And this has been... The problem, this has been the problem for the church and the people of the world ever since Christ went back up into heaven. How do we get amongst the presence of God? And we've done all sorts of things to try and get there. We've gone with Indiana Jones to try and find the ark. We've done that. We've pilgrimaged to Jerusalem to try and get in there and hold that space and say, can we find God's presence there? We've built massive, big churches to try and capture some of the beauty of this. All, you know, all got good things in and amongst them and bad things in and amongst them too. We've searched for the presence of God. How can we get there? Jesus says something really critical to how we understand how we can get to this presence. And he's, he's in the temple and it's in John 3 and it's also in Mark's gospel and he's in the temple and he's deliberating slash arguing with these people who are making a mockery of the temple. And he says this to them. He says, destroy this temple. Temple is the place that the tabernacle became. It's what it evolved into. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it again in three days. And they're all looking at him thinking, you're in the temple, you're talking about the temple. You're in the temple, and, you, and you, it's gonna, you may be thinking, we're going to destroy it by what we're doing and you're saying that you can rebuild it again in three days. Jesus is not saying that, is he? We know about this story. I'm going to rebuild this temple in three days. He's saying throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and in his death, I am going to change the way I am the change in how you access the presence of God. 
Paul helps us realize what it means to you when he writes to the Corinthians later on, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, all the best ones are 3, 16, and he, he writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, and they're falling out, and they're not getting on, and he's trying to just interrupt that, and he's trying to get them back to God, and he says, don't you know, and, and when they used to read out the letters to the church, some guy used to literally go at the front with the scroll and read it out, and he says this, and he looks around at the church, and I want to try and get eye contact with you at this point, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are the temple of God? That is what Jesus has done. And that's one of those sentences that should, you should go on the one hand, that's awesome. Clearly that's really great news. And on the other hand, man, that is, that's terrifying, isn't it? All that stuff that I've just described, this holy God that consumes people with his power and his holiness, that's me, that's living inside of me. Puts an incredible onus on us. If people are going to see this God who is merciful, if people are going to see that, they're not going to find it. This is the blunt truth. They're not going to find it in a church building. They're not going to find it gazing up to the sky. They're not going to find it if they can create the most awesome workspace in the whole world. you know where they're going to see it? This is terrifying stuff. This is ridiculous stuff. They're going to find it in you. And it's kind of awesome to have your eye contact now because I can sort of look you in the eye and go, you have got the holiness, the mercy, the love of God in you. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the death exists in you and it should blow us away. A couple of take-homes because it's hot and we can wrap up. I had this verse thrown at me a lot as, as a kid. Um, from my parents and others, they'd say, they'd say to me, and, and they'd use it in a certain way, they'd say, don't you know that your body's a temple? And sort of the application would be, so you shouldn't get a tattoo, or you shouldn't drink, or you shouldn't smoke, or whatever else it would be, and that would be kind of the limit of the application. And I, there's one sense in which, if only it was so easy, you are the temple of God. If, if anyone's gonna see this great God, they're gonna see it in you and in me. That's the first point. Second take home is wherever you are with God right now, wherever that is, and I don't know, I don't know you all super well, I know some of you better than others, but I don't know you all super well, wherever you are with God right now, he wants to be nearer. So if you're with God like, I turn to him when I'm panicking, and actually that's probably about as far as it goes, then God says, I want to be at the heart of all your decisions. If you're like, I go to church on a Sunday because it really helps me out, but there's not a lot else. God says, right, I want to be in your life 24-7. If it's an occasional, desperate, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, God says, I want to be at the root and at the heart of everything. If you're somebody who would say to me, Ash, I am totally committed to God. You've got no idea. I read my Bible all the time. I'm praying like just somebody possessed. I am just all over this. Then God says to us, there is more to me than you know about. Wherever you are with God at the moment, God wants to be nearer. There are millions of very interesting, insightful buildings all across the world, but there's only one building that this world needs to see, and it's us.